Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from First Orlando. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at firstorlando.com. And if you're in the Orlando area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now, enjoy this podcast from First Orlando. Let me ask you something. Let's just kind of begin this morning by thinking about, have you ever gotten a ridiculous, ridiculous offer that you thought, this is just too good to be true? You ever gotten anything like that? When I was growing up, uh, there was an advertisement that was in most of the magazines that I read. Now, to be honest, and for full disclosure, when I say magazines, comic books that I was reading, okay? And so there was always the same ad in each one of those And it was a picture of this guy right here, Charles Atlas. He was known literally at that time, this is long before Arnold, he was known as the strongest man in the world. Now, Charles Atlas' story was, he said, I used to be a 97-pound weekly, then I did all these exercises, and look at me now. And so he offered a home course that you could purchase, it would be sent to you, and then you do the exercises, and this is what he said, would happen. So ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you today as exhibit A, it was too good to be true. Okay? It just, it didn't quite turn out that way as you can tell. Now on the other hand, Crone and I have made a ridiculous offer to our kids and to our grandkids that is true. Because of all that we share in terms of the same identity, they get to experience all that we are and all that we have. So here's a a recent pic of our family. We've got three sons, we've got three daughter-in-laws, and we've got eight grandkids. Can anyone spot trouble already in this picture right here? So earlier this weekend, some of those grandkids came over to our house. They did what they normally do. They just walked right in. They didn't ring the doorbell, didn't knock on the door. They just walked in like the place belonged to them. One of them went over to the fridge, another went into my office, started playing on my computer, another went upstairs and grabbed my guitar and started playing. And Corona and I were having a conversation with our daughter-in-law, and all of a sudden we turned around and noticed that our youngest grandson, he's four, Judah, he was sitting on our nice white couch eating blueberries he had pulled out of the fridge. We go, Judah, let's see your hands blue all over. And of course, you know, for a four-year-old, all you need to do to get rid of the blue is just to rub it on the near surface around you. Now, some of you are wondering, David, do you now just have seven grandchildren? (laughs) Is one of them now missing? I will be honest with you, that thought was tempting to me in the moment. I'm going to cut him out of the will. But the reason why that didn't happen was because we have an unconditional deal that no matter what they do in life, no matter what they believe, they're always going to share our identity of all that we are and all that we have. Because our identities have been uh, integrated like that, they get to experience the same kind of deal. Now, sometimes this gets tested not in trivial ways, but in very significant ways. Even right now, as we speak, there's a smaller unit of this family that's broken off from the larger unit. They've chosen another lifestyle, another belief system, and said, we don't want to be connected with you any longer. Very painful. 
Lots of you know what it's like to have that kind of experience. And yet, because it's an unconditional deal we've offered them, we just keep telling them our arms will never close. They'll always be fully open. You belong to us no matter what in the world happens. Now, the Bible tells us about the deal of a lifetime. And initially, ah, it's just too good to be true. In fact, let me see if I can summarize the whole Bible for you in two words. Reading from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the book of Revelation, I would submit to you that on every single page, it's either about one of these two words or a combination thereof. Here they are. Covenant and kingdom. If you want to understand all the Bible in two words, that's it right there. Covenant and kingdom. Covenant has to do with a relationship, an unconditional relationship that God's established with each one of us. The word kingdom has to do with our being representatives of him. In other words, (laughs) our heavenly father, he has a family business and he invites us into the family business to represent the kingdom of heaven here on the kingdom of this earth in all of our networks and all of our neighborhoods. Now for the next few minutes, we're gonna focus though just primarily on that first word of covenant. Why? Because God's given us the deal of a lifetime and we can see it in the life of Abraham. Turn on your Bibles over the book of Genesis chapter 15 or turn on your device. And you can follow along there. We're going to begin with verse 1. But just to kind of give you a backdrop to all of this, a couple of chapters earlier in Genesis 12, God initiated a relationship with with Abraham. You have to understand, Abraham was not a God worshiper. He didn't even know how to spell God's name. There was no relationship, no thought of a relationship. And God pursues him. Doesn't that sound familiar for the rest of us? And initiated that relationship with him. And then he made him a promise, an outrageous promise that Abe, one day, one day, you're going to have more children than you could ever possibly count. You're going to have more property and possessions in all of that. Chapter 13 of Genesis, God then comes along and reaffirms that. Now we find ourselves here in Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham just flat pushes his luck with God. Abraham says to God, I want a sign written covenant. I want a sign written contract right here and now. So we pick it up in verse one. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is my servant. You have to understand, Abe and Sarah at this point in history are like somewhere near or in their 90s, okay? And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. It's difficult to comprehend how vulnerable life was in what's historically known as the Bronze Age. People, there was no civil law anywhere. There was no protection of persons nor of property. And so what would happen most often so that they wouldn't be prey to other people that want to do some harm to them or to their property or take it away from them is people would create alliances. They would create a covenant with one another that would demonstrate mutual support and mutual provision in their lives. This was a big deal. Now, it's amazing that God takes, God didn't create this holy covenantal deal 
God took what was already true in the culture and the culture understood and he poured out his holiness and his perfection right in the middle of all of it. Verse one, God offered himself as I said, Abe, I will be your shield and your great reward. I will be your shield, meaning I'll be your protector. I'll be your great reward, meaning I will be the provider for you. Everything in your life I'm gonna take care of and you can rest in that confidence. So we pick it up at verse four and then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, God says, but a son coming from your own body and will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. By the way, this is back in the day where there was no light pollution and everyone, everyone would regularly lay on the ground at night and look at the kajillions of stars that were being displayed before them, just shaking their head. So God says, look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him or he deposited in Abraham's account his righteousness. Now, wait a minute. Could God possibly be saying that Abram's household was gonna be even greater than the household of heaven? That's impossible. Especially again, when you consider Abe and Sarah at this point have no children in their 90s and let's just say, all the plumbing and all the parts are not working like they used to, okay? If we need to go more in detail that, you can come up and see me afterwards, all right? But yet, somehow, Abraham believed in his heart that because God said it, it was going to happen. Now, how about you? How do you tend to respond to God's word to you? That either comes through the scripture, comes through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, comes through a conversation with a friend, when God says to you, you are forgiven. When God says to you, there is now no more condemnation on your life. When God says to you, I've given you everything pertaining to life and godliness. When God says to you, and you're gonna be my ambassador in your networks and your neighborhoods. How do you tend to respond to God's word like that? Scripture says there in verse six, because of his faith, God gave Abraham the gift of righteousness. What in the world is that big honking religious word all about. Here's what righteousness is all about. Righteousness has to do with a right relationship that no wrong could ever spoil. A right relationship that no wrong could ever spoil. That's what God was offering to Abram and oh, by the way, offers to every single one of us today. You gotta understand, this was an unconditional covenant. <laughs> and so Abraham has a right relationship but Abraham participates in so many shenanigans over the course of his life. He would test that, yet God would never revoke that covenantal deal. For example, one time after God initially made this agreement with Abraham, Abraham and his wife Sarah were traveling through Egypt and a Pharaoh noticed Sarah, the Bible says, because she was extremely beautiful. And so Abraham began to fear for his own life and threw his wife under the bus and said, listen, if the Pharaoh asks who you are, tell him that you're my sister. <laughs> this, this, is, this is the person God makes this covenant with. But you know what? Even that, in fact, in the years, generations to come, every single one of Abraham's descendants were unfaithful to God in countless ways, and yet God never revoked the covenant. In verse seven, he also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land so that you can take possession of it. It's not enough 
that it gets offered, you and I have to take possession. But Abe said, oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abe brought all these to him, cut them in two, ranged the halves opposite each other. When the sun had set, verse 17, and darkness had fallen. Oh, this is such a bizarre scene. A blazing smoking fire pot with a blazing torch representing God's appearance, God's presence, appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So here's what a covenant ritual and ceremony would actually look like. You would cut the animals in half, lay them, and it created like a corridor of blood like this. So one person would stand on this end, representing they were like a stand-in for all of their tribe, for all their household, and another leader would stand on this end. And usually, by the way, there was a stronger party that for the benefit of the weaker party was making this deal. But they did see some advantages for themselves. So I'm walking through this corridor of blood, and when I come over here and I'm standing with a stronger party, the stronger party looks at me and says, everything I have belongs to you now. And so that stronger party would also walk through this corridor of blood and declare this, there's no longer you and me, but there's us. And he demonstrates that covenantal concept we're familiar with of the two becoming one. Two are now one. So both of them would declare as they took their new place in a new family. All is well. Verse 17. Abe's case becoming one is visualized by God traveling from one end of that to the other. Now typically in a covenant... Both partners had to participate. Both had to give up their old identities in order to take on their new identity. God had Abram bring some part of himself through his most prized possessions, which were these three-year-old animals that were capable of reproducing, very mature. They're like the most prized possessions of the time that you could have. So he has him cut it in half. But what's unusual about this covenant is instead of Abraham passing through the corridor of blood and then God, God is the only one that does that because he wants to demonstrate his unconditional relational deal. Actually, one of the things that would happen when you walk through this corridor of blood as a leader of a tribe of a household, you were saying, May it be done to me, may I be cut into pieces if I ever renege on the deal that I'm giving you. Now, he knew Abe was not capable of fulfilling that. And so God was saying, you know what? This is actually more of a one-way deal. I've invited you to participate. That's why I had you bring these particular things. But what was going on in all of that is an old life was being left behind. I'm walking through the corridor of blood in order to enter into a new life. I'm telling you, something had to die in order for something brand new to emerge in this. We see in this corridor of blood almost like the picture of a birth canal where I'm leaving one part of my life and I'm entering into a brand new way of life where I'm going to get fully identified with several people. That was the deal. Really, the only way you and I can best understand this covenantal ritual 
is by looking here in the 21st century at what it means to be married. In our wedding ceremony, where the bride walks down the aisle and then the two, the bride and groom, end up walking back down the aisle. What they're really doing is demonstrating covenant, whether they're aware of it or not. So let me show you a pic of our wedding. So uh, I want you to check out that curly hair that I had at the time and someone stole it from me, okay? Uh, I don't know if you can see it, but uh, the bling on Crone's hand, I was so spanking proud of that bling, I'd paid $215 for it. I was very proud of it. I found out later on she's not so much and she asked for an upgrade, all right? Now, some of you are going, why is that picture so grainy? It's because this was taken back in the 1800s, okay? So this is a long time ago. So check this out. Crone initially walks up through the aisle and joins me. We exchange commitments to each other, and then we walk back down the aisle together. Check this out. One family on one side, one family on the other, and as we walk through it together, the two become one. Because what we were doing is we were both dying to and leaving our independent identities in order to create a common identity. And all of a sudden by doing that, we were saying, you know what, from now on, it's not you or me, but it's us together. We share everything. We're going to get to share the same vehicles. We're going to get to share the same bank account. We're going to get to share the same name. And by walking down this aisle with families on both sides, we're also going to get to share one another's families for good, better, or worse. All right? Now, can you hear the covenantal language that Jesus used one time over in John 14 where he says, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can come and be a part of it. See, that hat, that's covenantal language right there of saying all that I have, God declaring to you and I every day, all that I have absolutely belongs to you. Walking down the aisle. But again, what was unusual about this covenantal ceremony this particular day was that Abraham was strictly an observer. God walks through it to demonstrate an unconditional deal that he's making with him. Also, again, the meaning of walking down through it is may it be done to me, God says, if I revoke any part of this covenant. That's why, again, we can hear the covenantal language of 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where it says, if any person is in Christ, if any person is taken on the identity of Christ, if any person has passed through this, the old has gone and the new has come. The new has emerged. Again, this is intended to represent a birth canal where I died of one thing and I'm now living and emerging into something brand new. What a powerful, powerful word picture. That's the power of the gospel. But let me see if I can put it to you in a further way you might understand. Let me show you what Chrome brought into our relationship. Chrome brought a Ford Pinto. Now, most of you have never heard of a Ford Pinto, but she, uh, Ford Pinto, she had a used, very used Ford Pinto she brought into our relationship. And then I think she had somewhere of upwards to $100, $150 to her name. Me, on the other hand, <laughs> I brought a Ford Fairlane. <laughs> and there's a reason why you haven't heard of that either. 
because it was not a good car. And I think I brought somewhere upwards of $200 into the whole deal. So you can see that it almost was like a fair exchange of what was going on. But let me ask you, with the deal Crone and I made, would it have looked any different if Crone had still brought her Pinto and I brought a Bugatti? You know what a Bugatti is? It's the most expensive car in all of the world. It costs $18 million. You can get a deal today for $18 million. Some of you, I can tell you're aghast. You're like, Wow, no car's worth it. That's why financial experts tell us, don't buy new, buy used. You can get a used Bugatti for $11 million. (laughs) What kind of deal is that? It's got 1,500 horsepower in it. You can run on the street. You can go down I-4, 260 miles an hour in Bugatti until they catch you, okay? Now, If Crumb brings a Pinto, I bring a Bugatti into the whole deal. And if there's that big of gap between the two of us, where she appears to be weaker, I appear to be stronger. She appears to be poor, I appear to be richer. Why would I enter into a deal like that with her? Very simple. Because of my deep, deep, deepest seated love and commitment for her that I want to be in permanent relationship with her from now on. Can I tell you what Abraham brought to this whole ceremony? Abraham brought and was driving a used Ford Pinto. And God, in effect, was going, wait, 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 wait. Let let me get this straight. Abraham was like, "You you want my Ford Pinto in order that I get this kind of trade in exchange with you? God, this is too good to be true. And it was, but it turned out to be completely true. So if that would have been the scenario, Crone would have stood at one end, walked down the aisle as the weaker, saying, now I've been made strong. There was scarcity in my life. Now I've been made rich in the most meaningful, significant life-giving ways. That's the power of the gospel. The covenant always involved a stronger party and a weaker party. The weaker party was clearly going to gain the greatest amount of benefit from all of it. But God, the reason why he was doing it is for the benefit of the weaker. So right now, how are you living into God's covenantal deal that he's offered to you? It's interesting further interesting to me that God's already said what he was going to do. Already made a promise. We were singing about promises a while ago. God already made a promise. And then Abe pushes his luck and goes, I want to see a written, signed contract. See, here's what Abraham was looking for. He was going, I need the word to become flesh so that I really know this is true. It's not just some words, but you are demonstrating it in the most powerful of ways. And so God agrees to do that. But can I tell you parenthetically? God knew that one day he would send his son Jesus and walk through death in our behalf 
so that we could gain a brand new identity in him. There's no way in the world that Abraham could have ever conceived that God one day would demonstrate it for every single one of us in the most phenomenal ways. We can also see that God began to restore, I believe, what got lost back in the garden. After the whole garden episode, people still were aware of a universal God. A living presence that somehow flung the stars into space, seemed to sustain all of creation. They were familiar with this universal God. What they weren't familiar with was a personal God. And so God comes along and reestablishes that. That's why, again, you can hear the covenantal language of Jesus in John 15, where he says, I no longer call you servants and slaves, but I call you friends. But even after accepting all that, Abraham initially believing God, and God giving him a right relationship that no wrong could ever spoil, even in the years to come, Abraham would still do some things outside of what God wanted for him to do. He slept with a woman that wasn't his wife and was Sarah's uh, maidservant and had a child by her because he just ended up losing faith for a period of time. Any of the rest of you a member of that same club like I am? Where sometimes the word of the Lord is so strong and you believe it in the moment and then later because it's just taken too darn long. You go, maybe I need to take things under my own power and my own control. Anyone else do that? Great, four of us. That's marvelous. All right. So if God's given us the deal of a lifetime, how can you and I begin to see this kind of stuff show up in our day-to-day life? A couple of suggestions. First of all, accept and receive this right relationship that no wrong could ever spoil. I don't know if you think that you've done something in the past that would spoil this relationship and cause God to think differently of you. I don't know if something or someone else has done something to you in the past where you think that just spoils the relationship that God promised me. It's a right relationship that no wrong could ever spoil. When I look at all of my failures, when you think about all of your failures, Romans chapter 8 says, there is no failure that's capable of separating you from the love of Jesus Christ and his commitment toward you. Isn't that awesome news? Absolutely is. Second thing, yep, second thing, another way that you can begin to live into this is to learn to anchor your identity in the significance of this relationship that God has set up for you. (laughs) A lot of us, think when someone asks us the question, so who are you? We tend to go, well, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a policeman, I'm a welder, I'm a school teacher. But did you know that's not who you really are? Those are just roles that you and I play. They're just uniforms we put on and we put on and take off and they come and they go. For example, if you ask me, David, who are you? I wouldn't first of all tell you, well, I'm a pastor. Because that's not who I really am. It's just a role that I play. Who I really am and who you really are are one and the same. 
You and I are lavishly loved by God no matter what. You and I have a sufficient supply for everything we need for this particular day no matter what. Every single one of us has a unique and a meaningful purpose that God has given us to incarnate in our networks and our neighborhoods no matter what. That's just too good to be true. See, everything that's contained in this book, all the promises and all that God swears by himself that he is and that he has is available for you and I the more you and I learn to anchor our identity in that very thing where you can access his healing, where you can access his resources, where you can access his forgiveness, where you can access the fact that you get to be a part of the family business no matter what the past or present tries to scream at you. You're still in the family. The third thing is become a difference maker. A third way this can show up in your life is by becoming a difference maker that wants to represent this deal of a lifetime. <laughs> when God initially makes the deal with Abe, God goes, now I'm not only blessing you, but I'm blessing you so that you will be a blessing to other people. It's not enough that you get to experience this. I want you representing me and distributing my goodness to other people. And Abraham took up on that. In the next several weeks, there's going to be a really simple and practical way you can be a difference maker with a few of your family members or friends. It looks something like this. This month, we're challenging you to be a difference maker in the lives of your family and friends. You have the opportunity to consider facilitating a five-week life-giving discussion in September, centered around five stories of hope that we've selected from God's big story in the Bible. That's right. We've put together a simple format with a short series of discussion questions that will help you facilitate these life-giving discussions for five weeks with a small group of interested people in your life. If you're ready to say, yes, I'm in, or if you'd just like some more info, text HOPE to 40777. Yep, and don't worry, it doesn't take a certain educational level, economic level, or spiritual level to facilitate these five weeks of life-giving discussions with the people in your life. Right. Anyone can do this. We will show you exactly how to do it. We will equip you in 15 minutes to be able to facilitate this kind of group. If you'd consider being a difference maker where God has you all week, along with people you are already around and know during these five weeks in September, text HOPE to 40777. Ready to go? Let's go. All right. So as we... If you're clapping, that means right now at this moment, with the other hand, you're texting the word HOPE to 40777. See, I want to challenge you to not just be a hearer of God's word today, but be a doer. Step into this super simple way you can be a difference maker a few weeks from now. Look at this. Over in Galatians chapter 5, 
it connects all the dots for you and I. It says, and now because of that, the air is cleared and we can see that Abraham's blessing is present now and is available now. Can we all just read the last part of this together? We are all able to receive God's life, his spirit in and with us by believing just the way Abraham received it. That promise is as good for you and I today as it has ever been. I want us to take just a few moments to reflect and to receive, to be able to respond to God in light of this deal of a lifetime that he's making for us. Thanks again for listening to the First Orlando Podcast. For more information like our service times, location, and other contact information, be sure to visit us online at firstorlando.com. Have a great week.